All right. Welcome to the Rigged Podcast, episode two, uh, where we talk Commonwealth versus Scott with Dana Curran, one of the lawyers involved in that case. Um, what will we be talking about today? What will we be covering? Uh, we'll be covering the landmark decision that attempted to make sense of what Annie Dukin's effect on the criminal justice system should have been. Uh, and we will cover whether that decision was informed uh, with all of the facts uh, uh, or, or enough facts to make sure that justice was achieved. Right. All that and more on today's Rigged Podcast. Enjoy. All right, so we are going to go over the Commonwealth versus Scott today. And today with us as our guest is Dana Curran, who was a lawyer involved in that case. Now, Dana, could you give us your background and how you became to uh, be involved with the Commonwealth versus Scott? Well, my general background, I'm a Harvard Law School graduate. I was a prosecutor in uh, Bristol County in uh, New Bedford and uh, doing appeals for about five years. I ended up there as chief of appeals. I went into private practice a little over 30 years ago and uh, have been focusing on appeals since then. I I started out doing mostly criminal. Uh, I now do about half criminal and half civil, but I still have a significant criminal appellate practice. Uh, How I got involved is... um, the SJC took up a series of cases uh, when, when all the Duke and stuff broke. Uh, initially, the, uh, what, the message we were getting from the prosecutor's offices was that this is no big deal. Uh, this is um, a few isolated incidents. And it turns out uh, there's an old saying, you don't just find one cockroach. <laughs> and many cockroaches uh, suddenly appeared. So the SJC took a series of cases, um, mostly on guilty pleas. There were three types of cases. Uh, First was where Annie Dukin had signed uh, a drug certificate of analysis as the primary tester, somewhere she had signed as the secondary tester, and somewhere she had not signed at all, but where the case was in the Hinton lab and she was running around allegedly committing all kinds of misconduct. So uh, I think the SJC was looking for cases in all three categories, and they took two cases in each category. Uh, Rakeem Scott was one of those cases. I had one of, uh, and was one of the cases where Dukin was the primary. Um, I had one of two cases where she was the secondary, and then there were to other cases where she was just in the building. Dana, can you comment on how those how were the cases uh, uh, how how were the lawyers paired with the cases? Meaning, was it are these assigned? Did you get to choose? And then, what what, what type of uh, communication or even um, not negotiation, but some sort of uh, organized discussions uh, ensued about how to. Uh, uh, frame the arguments given these three categories? I don't remember exactly how I was assigning. Somebody over at CPCS asked me to get involved. And they had cases that they 
sort of cherry picked and they wanted to get um, somebody assigned. So they assigned, um, you know, there's some very good appellate lawyers, some of the best appellate lawyers uh, on the CPCS roster, both staff attorneys and uh, private counsel were, um, were assigned. So I was assigned to, uh, to Renee Torres, who was, um, again, Annie Duke in secondary. Okay. And, and at that time that you were assigned, did you have any sense of, boy, one category of cases might be better than the other? Or, I, you know, I have the best category, I have the worst category. Did you have any idea how these were going to shake out uh, in the end? Well, it, it, was, uh, it was sort of an open question. And we had meetings over at CPCS. We had a number of meetings where everybody showed up and we talked about strategies. And um, the thought was that um, Annie Duke in primary, where she was the first one, where, where she did the initial test, was probably going to be, uh, they, they were probably going to be sent back. Uh, they, they're going to be reversed. And Annie Duke in secondary, which was one of the category that I was, that was sort of up in the air. And I thought they were going to have a difficult time if uh, she had not signed the certificate but she was in the building uh, at the time committing uh, a misconduct, uh, if, if, you, if you will. Did you know at that time that she was uh, caught forging other chemists' initials? Um, I, think we, I think we knew that or we had some hint of that. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I wasn't... Um, I wasn't Annie Duke and was in the building. I wasn't that third category. And that was really their issue. That, that was their focus. I see. And yours was straightforward. She signed as the secondary chemist. Right. Well, it, it, it was not all that straightforward. Okay. Uh, the primary, if she was the primary, she got the sample. She did an initial bench test where you pour some chemicals and it turns blue or you do some, something akin to what a police officer will do in a field test. And so it, it is, it really isn't, it doesn't tell you much. It doesn't tell you the specific composition of the substance, but if she has control of the sample and, you know, she is making negative samples turn positive, then I think anything where she was the primary is highly problematic. Right. Because why so, was she making negatives into positives? We still don't have the official well, answer for that. If, if she if she makes a negative a positive, then that affects everything else. That affects the the secondary test because it is now going to come back if it you know if if you had uh, a bag full of inositol and nothing else that now all of a sudden is testing positive from the primary when she hands that over to the secondary that is going to test positive as well. Right. And, and if she takes that stuff that she uses to make it positive from another case that actually has it, that affects weights to your point. It's like a house of cards, right? Right. Cause she's not so, like, getting other drugs from other places. Yeah. And I think she was going into the safe and she had her stuff at her desk that um, would, you know, make a negative, a positive. Yep. So uh, then the, the, my focus was on the secondary and the, the thought was, well, this is just a confirmatory test, but it's, it's, um, and, and the thought was that, you know, if somebody other than Dukin had done the primary and had not tainted the sample, 
then when you hand it off to the secondary, secondary, that just confirms what you already knew. But that's not really the case because that's, um, you know, you, you can, you can make, um, I mean, the one who actually decides or determines what the substance is and what the percentage is and the precise composition is the secondary, uh, who then who runs it through machines that tell you the precise chemical makeup of the substance that you have. So it, it was uh, a much more, uh, I mean, that's where the real testing takes place. So if you have something that shows up and on the secondary testing, becomes uh, all of a sudden becomes cocaine and maybe you even had a negative test the first time around or an inconclusive test the first time around that really there's a real opportunity to make that sample uh into something that maybe it was not originally yeah and then you send it back to you send it back for retesting to the the primary and and they may you know now they have a tainted sample and they say oh yeah yeah well we uh, this is a much more accurate and reliable test, so maybe I was wrong. So was the state telling you, or was the state asserting that the secondary test was not important at first? Is that where the th- that thought process came from? They were, and it, it, if you look at the uh, oral argument, what Kamal said, you know, what's the big deal? It's just a confirmatory test. And, you know, I got up there, and the they six lawyers who argued uh, you know, we got up there and we, um, we had li- a limited time, but what, uh, what happened was, um, Justice Botsford said something like, isn't this just a confirmatory test? What's the big deal? There's still a good sample with the primary. Why is this important? And so my discussion at oral argument and pro- probably my entire time up there was talking about exactly what I just told you. You know, you run it through the uh, gas chromatology mass spectrometer machine, mm-hmm. which you have to calibrate and you have to do all kinds of things. And, you know, then you learn uh, that that's where the real test takes place. Right. And, and we, we touched on this last time and we'll get into more uh, detail, I think, later. But I, I'm curious about the, where, if there was an assumption with the court that if she was monkeying with samples on her bench as a primary, uh, wouldn't she be equally as likely to want to monkey with the, uh, the vials uh, that have, uh, alo- I, I think the, the word is aliquots, um, in them? And if, if you have an open container of cocaine and you have an unknown sample that you want to be cocaine, wouldn't it be very easy just to drip a little bit into that vial as the secondary chemist uh, sure. So where where does the assumption come from that if she's uh, bent on malfeasance as a primary, that she somehow is going to be an angel uh, as a secondary? Well, I think the the argument was that um, part of the argument was that um, you could just go back and retest and get another secondary to retest the clean sample that the primary has. Right. But so she's, you know, she's what's changing the big deal? The, but I, yeah. I think what she was doing was she was testing, she was doing the confirmatory test and said, "Oh no, I, I found cocaine." And go back. Here's you know, go back and retest, right. or 
go back and take a look at it. Here's what I, here's, here's what you gave me. Go test that uh, on your own. And, you know, yeah, it's going to turn blue. Now, was and the, oh, go ahead. Sorry. The, the other thing that the, the other argument the Commonwealth made was, uh, what's the big deal? All these people pled guilty. Mm. When you plead guilty, you have to admit that you're guilty. And you have to say, yes, it was cocaine. And I was dealing it on, you know, at this time. And, you know, the, the, uh, I, I think the idea that these people were factually innocent, I don't think that was realistic. I think probably most of these people were, were guilty in the stuff had it been tested properly, would have tested, um, you know, positive for whatever substance they said it was. Right. Um, so have, had you at this point, oh, actually, so, so was your client, uh, he, he pled, right? Is that correct? He, he did. Yeah. And, um, that was most of the clients in that were involved in this case in Commonwealth versus Scott, correct? They all had uh, plea deals. I, I think that, I think that's right. And so vacating a plea deal, um, is that something that happens often in uh, criminal cases before this or prior to this? No. Uh, vacating a plea is like putting toothpaste back in the tube. Right. It, it very rarely happens. And, and they didn't vacate all of the pleas here. I mean, uh, a judge in, in Scott's case had vacated the plea. Mm-hmm. And the SJC said, no, we're not going to vacate the plea. We're gonna we're we're reversing that decision vacating the plea. However, what we are gonna do is we're gonna send it back down to the trial court, and there is gonna be a uh, presumpt a presumption that there's egregious conduct and that it is it is attributable to the government. Right. So you, if you're starting out with um, egregious government conduct, uh, presumed. You have to. All you have to show is, you know, I wouldn't have pled guilty if I had if I had known about the misconduct. And you know, that's not that hard a um, a showing to make. Yeah, if you show, if you say, yeah, I pled guilty because there was a positive uh, test, and they were going to introduce this this certificate against me. Uh, but if I had known that it was uh, fudged and uh, that who knows whether it was positive or not. I wouldn't have entered that plea. Right. Now, some people and probably ended up pleading guilty, but a lot of people, a lot of pleas got vacated and the cases were no prost. So it was kind of like a, a grab bag of who, um, of like, it was a per judge's discretion. So there was no, at that time, there was no like remedy to say all these cases are dismissed. A lot of them went back to retrial. Is that what you're saying? Like they got bounced down to trial court for another trial with the presumption of uh, government misconduct? Well, a lot of them uh, got, got sent down to the trial court for um, a hearing on, a mo- on the motion to withdraw a guilty plea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have that presumption with you and you say, you know, I wouldn't have pled, uh, you know, if, for example, I had, I had one where the Commonwealth was not willing to vacate the plea. Uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, they, they just null process when it got down there. And I had one where they weren't willing to do that. So we had a hearing before a judge and I put my client on the stand and, and he said, no, I wouldn't have pled guilty if I'd known that, um, that, that um, this was going on. And, and judge allowed it. 
Now, you, you mentioned that factual, factually, uh, many of these uh, defendants may have, in fact, been guilty of, of possession or, or distribution of a, a controlled substance, but, it, but uh, obviously not everybody. I, I represented uh, a, an individual that um, uh, did not have uh, uh, cocaine. Uh, Andy Dukin was the primary uh, and uh, and uh, probably, in all likelihood, the facts are a little bit murky how it happened. But somehow, on a on a series of retests, what seemed like initially negative became a positive. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting is there were other chemists involved. They were aware, uh, and uh, uh, there was a practice at Hinton, and and, and I'm assuming at Amherst. Uh, of retesting until the desired result was obtained. And so a question that I have for you is, was anybody aware uh, of uh, a systemic lab-wide failure to turn over exculpatory evidence? Because one of the things about a plea is there isn't a trial. And as I understand Brady, uh, the government has a duty to turn over exculpatory evidence for trial but a lot of people were pleading uh, uh, without necessarily, maybe with a drug cert in hand. Maybe they didn't see it. Maybe that maybe it wasn't even uh, prepared. Um, but you, uh, the government doesn't necessarily have an obligation to give you everything when you take a plea. So, how, uh, what was there any awareness that there was this uh, issue of retesting? And it was retesting regardless of who were the chemists, meaning it wasn't just Annie Dukin. Did, did you know any of that when you were arguing or preparing for Scott? No. They didn't, they didn't tell us any of this. Mm. Yeah. And, and, sorry, go ahead. And withholding, so what Ilias is talking about is essentially every time they would get it, or when they would get negative tests, it would go back for retesting. And only if they got excuse me, negative results from the tests. Then it would go back and retest and retest and retest until they could. They would say it was weak. Like they would say that the results were weak. But the only thing that that the defense attorneys would ever get if they got anything was the last final positive test that they got. Not that they tested it six times with weak or unsubstantiated results. They only get that last time where they could get the result, the desired results, which was always a positive test. Yeah, they weren't telling us any of that. And so let's step back for a second, because uh, I think, uh, you know, we covered last time Melendez Diaz, which is a remarkable case, went up to the Supreme Court of the United States on a, a, a very, for some people, maybe arcane, but very crucial issue of uh, uh, the rights of all Americans to be, uh, to co- be confronted or confront their, the, the witnesses who are testifying against them. Uh, you, you use the phrase uh, egregious conduct or egregious government misconduct that's a term of art uh in the law can you explain how uh, if i if i were someone in your shoes with decades of experience both on the prosecution side and on the defense side is this something that i see every day every week every month you just say hey i got one of those egregious government misconduct cases or is this sort of one of those once in a lifetime things that you 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 some lawyers uh go their entire career without seeing and is this something that's so significant that it sort of becomes almost too hot to touch for everybody, uh, including the ultimate deciders at the, at the uh, Supreme Judicial Court? Well, I, I think you get 
some of these cases, and you get somewhere you suspect it, but you can't really prove it. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I had somebody who um, her boyfriend was dealing drugs out of the apartment, and the police kicked down the door. They had a search warrant. They went in there, and they seized a kilo of cocaine with 1% purity, which is not really something that is very common. And what we suspected that uh, had happened was they came in and all they found was, um, you know, a few grams. And they went into the cupboard and they found a bottle of inositol and poured it out on the counter and sprinkled that, you know, whatever, a couple of packets of cocaine that they found on there and said, oops, we have a kilo. Because it's not the amount of cocaine, it's the mixture of cocaine. So if there's 1% in there that's cocaine, too bad. It's, um, you now have, have a kilo. So I've had a few cases like that where I suspected that maybe the police had done something like that. They had uh, turned a negative into a positive. If they had been there two hours later and uh, all the stuff had been mixed up and packaged, then um, they would have found what they were looking for, just that they came in at the wrong time there was a, only a little bit there, and that's what they did. Right. Uh, so, you know, and Dukin is probably, I mean, I won't say it's a once-in-a-lifetime. It's a, it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime that uh, probably twice in a lifetime with the Sonia Farrakh stuff, uh, where, where it actually gets exposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. let, me, let me get, prior to Crawford, the Supreme Court had said, uh, look, uh, we don't really insist on cross-examination. Uh, as long as the evidence is reliable, what's the big deal? And that was the presumption for uh, for a couple of decades. Then Scalia came out and said, you know, the, the um, Constitution says confrontation, and confrontation means confrontation. So, yeah, you need to cross-examine, you need to be able to cross-examine witnesses. So Crawford opened up a can of worms, and there were a lot of cases where, you know, uh, for example, in a domestic violence case, uh, the police come in, they they get an excited utterance from the victim who said, yeah, my boyfriend just beat me up. And uh, then uh, six months later, when the case goes to trial and they've reconciled, she won't come in. The police come in and say, well, even though it's hearsay, it's reliable hearsay under the Supreme Court's test, and we're going to let all this stuff in as excited utterances and use it substantively. Uh, Supreme Court said you can't do that. Now, when they said that, um, our thought as defense attorneys was, what about drug certificates of analysis, firearm certificates, all these other things? And the thought was, uh, okay, these are still reliable. You know, you pour something in and the stuff turns blue, or you put it in a machine and you get a particular result. That's a scientific test, and it really doesn't need to be subject to cross-examination. And I made that argument that this stuff, and many times that this stuff really requires confrontation. Really, It requires somebody to come in and say this, not just a certificate. and you know, have that uh, conversation on the witness stand and be subject to cross-examination. 
Right. And that was it. Uh, judges looked at me like I had three heads. And that's crazy to me because, um, as the as what was brought in front of the Supreme Court in um, Melendez Diaz was essentially the idea of uh, trial by affidavit, and right. um, that's what the that's what you know. Um, Mr. Melendez Diaz representation was saying in front of the Supreme Court where it's, you know, these are not just pieces of paper that are made um, in a static environment. These are actually created by people who are prone to error and are fallible. And it should be confronted in that way. It's not just a scientific report. Like the, the state has been asserting. And I think we found out because of that case, um, we found out that that was exactly what was going on in, in Massachusetts, of all places. Exactly. I, I had a case that um, predated Melendez-Diaz by a year. And it was a firearm certificate, and the trooper had, had fired the firearm, and it didn't fire. So he replaced the firing pin, and he replaced you know three or four other parts. And he said, after I did that, it, it fired. Well, you know, I wanted to cross-examine him on... You know, or I think trial counsel should have been able to cross-examine him on uh, was it really a firearm? Because you, if you replace half of the mechanism of the gun, then it's not really a firearm, and we should have been able to show that. Right. Unfortunately, it was a private case, and the clients didn't want to spend the money to, to take it up, and I would have done it free of charge to get that up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but they didn't. They, they thought, well, you lost it in the appeals court, so you screwed up. So you're you're done. But you know that's precisely what happened with Melendez Diaz, in you know in the context of a of drug certificates. And I, and I think um, you know the Supreme Court did absolutely right, the right thing on that. Now, uh, going back to this period when you were assigned. Uh, one of the cases in uh, that ultimately became Commonwealth v. Scott. Um, first of all, how, I think the you know the public has a, a view that legal arguments are prepared and and deployed in in a neat one hour segment, just like on TV. And um, that's not obviously the case. Could you uh, fill in sort of how long did you work on that case, where you referenced the discussions with other lawyers? Working on these cases, uh, uh, you know, how much uh, 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 heavy lifting did you put in uh, just to get to the point of uh, of of making the oral argument? And then during that time, how how cooperative was the was the Commonwealth? Um, let me answer the second part first. Um, they weren't particularly cooperative. They gave us what they were ordered to give us, nothing more. Um, I and I, I think they were throughout this process, even up through oral argument, we're attempting to minimize all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as what it took to get this case before the SJC, uh, a typical brief uh, might take 50 hours to write. And then you go up there and I think I was given um, eight or 10 minutes, maybe eight minutes at, at oral argument. Normally you get 15 and you get 20 for a first degree murder. So you go to the SJC and argue if first degree murder and you have your 20 minutes, but that brief may have taken you 300 hours to write. Right. Right. Uh, really depending on the size of the record. This case, uh, we didn't have a huge record. We have a guilty plea. And, you know, I think we probably shared some research and at the meetings we discussed strategy. 
so it it didn't take it, I, I don't remember how many hours it took, but it took quite a while for us to get all of these briefs together and uh, and submit them. I mean, it, it could have been fifty hours on my part. And and you said the guilty plea. You're referring to Annie Dukin's guilty plea. Is that right? Or are you referring to your your client's record? I'm referring to my client's record because uh, when I talk about the record, uh, how big is the, um, you know, when you get a a package and you get transcripts and you get, um, you get a file, how big is it? And um, if you get, uh, for example, I have a murder case right now where I have uh, seven file boxes full of stuff and 16 volumes of transcript. Uh, that's a pretty big record, and that's taken a long time to go through and to uh, put the brief together. In a guilty plea, you get some discovery, you get uh, uh, some motions that were filed, and then uh, the guy goes in and he does a a 20-minute colloquy and pleads guilty. So there's not a huge record there. And, And the knowledge base that you had, aside from your client's thin file, was what had been disclosed either through the media, through the Commonwealth, directly through discovery, or sort of indirectly through sort of um, some sets of admissions uh, about what Annie Dukin had done, and basically only what Annie Dukin had done. Is that right? Yeah, we got what Annie Dukin had done, and we didn't get any information that anybody else had done anything else. Right. You know, we kind of knew that, that, that there was some pretty poor supervision of the lab. You know, if she's forging initials and going into the safe, uh, that's, a, that's a problem. Right. And they weren't saying why she was doing it, and all you were getting was what they were giving to you, essentially, right? Right. And kind of blank without interpretation. And there was, in what you, going back to something you said earlier, that they were kind of fighting on uh, giving you uh, information about this, there was never, in your mind, there was never like a mea culpa where they're like, I can't believe what this woman did. Like, this is just beyond the pale. Like, we need to work something out. That was not the attitude, right? That was not the attitude. And, and uh, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, we'll dive in later into the, the actual chemistry or uh, I'll, I'll use the word chemistry eu- euphemistically. But the science that was supposed to be taking place, uh, th- this idea that there were two chemists, uh, it, I think the Commonwealth was sort of admitting that, but there was no actual factual findings exploring uh, that issue. Um, uh, is that right? Because later, it, I think that issue becomes even more complicated. There were times when maybe one chemist tested a sample uh, through both phases. Uh, there may have been situations where there were three chemists testing through uh, the two phases. Uh, this idea of that it, there is this sort of rigid two chemist system that was given to you, right? That wasn't the product of your personal or any other lawyers that you you were working with. Uh, their investigation. No, that that was given to us, and they weren't admitting anything else. Hmm. And uh, Ms. Dukin was doing something called dry labbing where she would take samples out and sort of spread them out. And if they all looked the same, she would test one and then say that she tested the others. Right. So if, if, she's, um, if you grab somebody and you have um, uh, 75 bags of 
suspected heroin, she would test one and then say that she tested. You know, you don't necessarily have to test everyone, right? But you have to test a representative sample. Right. She would test one and then say that she had tested them all. So what she was doing, so there's dry labbing and there's representative sampling. And those two things right. are, in my mind, she took the idea of representative sampling and just expounded it, you know, beyond, like it made up her own rules about it. And that's what essentially was called dry labbing. But she would test, but to your point, it would be one sample out of 70. And there's rules that you, in order for it to be legitimate representative sampling, you had to a sample a representative amount of that drug, not just based on an eyeball test. Right. And so, you know, if you, if you have 75 uh, identical packets and you test one, that's a problem. If you pick out 15 of them and test them randomly and they all come back positive, you can extrapolate, but you need to disclose that. Right. And that's of, that course, that's, of course, that, within one, one case, meaning one right. defendant or a group of defendants from a, a single case. Um, the, the idea that you might be able to uh, extrapolate across different defendants uh, never do that. Would, would never be acceptable. And uh, what, what appears to have been going on at, 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 on one level is that it appears that samples were sort of arrayed. So you might say, I'm going to take today 50 cocaine or suspected cocaine samples and kind of mass produce them. There was sort of a Henry T. Ford, uh, or is that his middle initial? Uh, Henry Ford <laughs> process uh, to, yeah. uh, to all of this. Um, and, but that was never really disclosed. Uh, but the other thing that's, was there any nuance here when uh, you mentioned weights and, uh, but was there any nuance to, for example, they were doing something different with marijuana? Or cocaine had an extra step in the primary that wasn't necessarily uh, the same for other drugs. Was there any discussion about uh, that the, it mattered what the sample was? Or for example, class E drugs. When, when you were told there's a primary and a secondary, was that sort of given as law and it was the law for all samples regardless of the, of the type? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's right. And, and I did subsequently have a, um, a Dukin case where it was marijuana. And what they did is they didn't call her at all. Uh, they brought in an expert from uh, the, uh, the Weymouth Police Department and said, yeah, I smelled it. I looked at it. Uh, it's marijuana. <laughs> oh, my God. And nobody from the lab. Right. And, wow. right. and I smelled it. That's the scientific test they did. Right. Yeah. Um, and so... So the SJC um, saw Dukin's role um, at the lab. Well, actually, let me just ask you, did you, like, in order to get the cases dismissed, did you have to prove that Dukin was part of the prosecution team? Well, if you, under the SJC's uh, decision, un under Scott, mm -hmm. you know, any primary, if she signed it, it's a primary it goes down with a presumption. If it's a secondary, it goes down with a presumption. If it is um, Annie Dukin was in the building, then it goes down without the presumption. Right. And you still, then you have a much higher burden of showing that there was misconduct in your case. I see. see. The, the big hurdle was always, you know, can you show egregious government misconduct? 
And, and but if it, you can, can you, you you then get to say, yeah, if I'd known of this egregious government misconduct, I wouldn't have pled. That's the easy part. Were they asserting though that Dukin wasn't part of, like, she was an independent witness and not part of the the government's team, or was that taken as for granted that she was part of the prosecution team? Well, I mean, I think they made um, arguments, but not all that. I, I don't think their heart was really in that part. Right. And I think that the, the being a member of the team, I think uh, that was established in uh, the early 80s, I think. That if, right. Um, but let, so let's, let me step back and try to use an analogy because I think it's, it's what, what is hard to understand in this case is that the presumption of go- egregious government misconduct is not based on the facts of other than the stereotyping of is she a primary, is she a secondary? It's not based on the facts of any particular defendant's case. The overcoming of the presumption may, but the idea is we're establishing that she had uh, committed egregious government misconduct based on sort of these just general understanding of what she was doing. And I'm t- I, I tried to think of an analogy uh, and, so that people can understand. And, and here's the best I could come up with. Um, Let's say I'm a cyclist, and I'm a pretty good cyclist, and I might finish in the top three and get a medal um, on, on a typical race. Um, and uh, uh, apart from following the rules of the race, so you, you, you don't leave too early, you stay in the marked lane, et cetera, uh, um, uh, uh, I, I, conduct all, I, I per, uh, perform in all these races. Years later, somebody finds out that I was blood doping. And I was blood doping for a two-year period. Uh, they don't have to prove that I blood doped for any particular race. Once you establish that I've doped, the authorities can go back, the cycling authorities, and strip me of my medals based on a presumption that I had cheated during a particular race, even if I was the fastest person in that race. Uh, and even if I didn't need to dope uh, for that race, and maybe I slacked off on my uh, uh, drug regimen right before the race, and maybe I was technically clean during that race. Is that kind of similar to what we're talking about here? That's, that's probably similar. Uh, you know, I, again, you have, um, if, if the police grab somebody and find packets of white powder uh, and see hand-to-hand sales and things like that, probably uh, what's in there is going to test positive for, for some type of controlled substance. So, and, and that's why a lot of people would plead guilty. You know, they, they'd see that certificate uh, and, and they would uh, plead guilty. Okay, so now you have this uh, presumption, but some people would probably come in and say, okay, you know, I had a gun in my pocket and, um, you know, the, the stuff field tested for cocaine and I, I mean, some some of these pleas may not necessarily have been withdrawn, uh, or if they had, if there had been some opportunity, or they may have been a, a different plea. You know, maybe they they cut the time down and there was still a plea. Right. So um, I wanted to get into Dukin's motive. I know we had talked about it a little before, and you had alluded to that it was felt as though it was fairly inconsequential to the ultimate ruling. And to that point, according to the SJC, it said uh, their idea of her motive said, Dukin appears to have been motivated primarily by a desire to appear highly productive 
not by a desire to target particular defendants she can now identify. Um, was that ever challenged in court? Do you remember if that was, um, if anyone, how that was argued? I don't remember. I think a lot of it, uh, you know, her motivation is, um, may not have been all that relevant. You know, if whatever her motivation was, she was doing what she was doing, and that's really what's important. And there were cases, and she couldn't identify which cases. There were cases where she made a negative test come out positive. Uh, that being the case, you know, I don't really care why she was doing this. Uh, so, you know, when you get into Sonia Farak, uh, here is somebody who was, you know, working from a completely different motivation. She was using some of the some of the uh, drugs she was uh, she was testing, and you know, so different motivation, but very probably very similar um, conduct or types of conduct. Right, but I. Um, my point is that the SJC got it completely wrong on her motive, and so did the state, and so has the media um, so far in this case. And I find that kind of strange because there's so much evidence, like you guys submitted in your brief, emails between Dukin and prosecutors where they were extremely buddy buddy. Um, you know, ADA Jeremy Bucci from your brief. Uh, she, he's the, the chief narcotic officer in asset for, of the narcotics and asset for, forfeiture unit at Suffolk County. He wrote to Duke in thanking her for her help on a case and stating, I appreciate how easy you made my job by doing your job so well. And then um, he also wanted to use her testimony as a training tool for ADAs to help educate the younger ADAs and sharing the good news that the bad guys in this case have agreed to 15 years. And there's, there's dozens of, we'll go over more and more of these emails. There's a bunch in your brief. Um, but to me, it's important because of what was argued by Massachusetts to, in Melendez-Diaz, where they were saying that these chemists are just robots that don't care about what the results of the tests are, where Dukin clearly did care and was championed by the prosecutors as like a white knight. And to me, that brings up issues as to like if a prosecutor were to have an ad hoc conversation with her regarding, you know, a test that another chemist was doing, like, can you help me out here? Because this guy could get back on the streets and he's, you, you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. I mean, I, now let me, let me correct you. I think you, you're referring to uh, Amy Belger's brief. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote a separate brief. <laughs> okay. In, I'm sorry. In, uh, Yep. In uh, my client's case, um, I think I raised the same points, but you know, I'm not sure how how critical I really see this. I mean, I think the the prosecutors are like that with police officers and with lab people and with everybody else. I mean, when I was uh, a prosecutor, I you know we we didn't talk to lab people, but we talked to police officers, and you know. Uh, they would thank us, so we would thank them, and um, that's okay. Right. But what's not okay is, you know, what she was doing in order to get there. I mean, if she was just uh, doing the test straight up and legitimately and was having conversations with uh, prosecutors about, you know, hey, this is great, we got the bad guy, that may raise some questions, but that probably wouldn't give me grounds for any kind of relief. Right. Uh 
Dana, I, I agree with you that at at the end of the day, the motive, the the why question is not actually relevant. Um, but don't you have to understand the why, the motive, to know the scope? And and you mentioned Sonia Farak, and I think that's a perfect example. If Sonia Farak's motive was, hey, today I want to know what crack tastes like, that's mm-hmm. very different than I've been addicted to crack for 10 years. One tells you the scope uh, 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 is drastically different than the other. And I think with Annie Dukin, if her motive was something other than rushing, um, which and we have evidence that we'll get to later that that's not true. She was actually spending more time with negative samples. She was spending more time with samples that she wasn't getting credit for. Um, but uh, if her motive was on occasion to turn negatives into positives, and, and there's a reason for that that we've never really gotten, doesn't that affect your client's argument in front of the SJC? If, if, if she is hell-bent on, on putting potentially innocent people in prison, wouldn't it matter that she's a secondary also? Because she's now, she has the opportunity to do something and the disposition to do it, and, and we just have to figure out how she's going to do it. But it seems to me that the absence of motive here was really part of a government effort, as you said, to minimize. So let's not worry too much about why she did this, because if you figure out why she did it, you're going to realize that this problem is actually bigger than we are letting on. I think her motive, um, the motive that she, that has been described, I think is relevant in this case because she went beyond just saying, hey, isn't this wonderful? Um, I tested this stuff, it came out positive, and now you have a guilty plea. Uh, If it is, um, let me do what I can to make sure you get a guilty plea. Uh, let me do you a favor. Let me change the results. Yeah, that's highly re- relevant. And that's what we're talking about. And also, right. um, from a perspective, I take it like I, I'm coming at it from a different angle because I'm just a normal kind of citizen. I, I don't really, you know, deal with this on a regular basis and don't see it. But when I, if an ADA were to come to me and say your test is crucial on keeping our streets safe. Your test is crucial on not letting this potential murderer or whoever is being charged with the crime um, out on the street to be dangerous to society. I think like people, most people would feel an obligation to make sure, regardless of what came through scientifically, that that had the correct positive result to keep the street safe. And that's. I, I mean, I think you're, pro- you're probably right. Um, you know, she clearly took it too far. What we would hope for and expect would be, uh, and and I'm not sure if you if you're if prosecutors are contacting lab people and saying, you know, we really need this result. Uh, we really need you to get uh, result X. I think the the communication with pros- between prosecutors and lab people are something like, um, okay. We have this case, and there, there may be a, a murder involved, and we really need you to move to the, this the front of the line and do the testing. Uh, and and um, you know, if they do that, you know, a, a, a competent and ethical lab person will do. You know, may move thing something up ahead in the line and test it and say, "Hey, it didn't come out the way we were hoping. Sorry." 
Right. And that's and the way it should it. work, right? Checks and balances and and they should be open to doing that. But um, from the emails that I've seen, and I'll share one with you that I have on the top of my head, uh, one prosecutor from Norfolk County once emailed Dukin and said, I have a personal vendetta against this um, defendant because he tried to injure a certain police officer. And this is what he was caught with. There, and, but they didn't say make sure that he comes back guilty. They left that part out. But they, she did say that she had a personal vendetta against the defendant, and those kind of things were going fast and furious. That wasn't a lone, separate email. It was that kind of language that was being used. Yeah, and I think there was one instance where she sent back the lab, the paperwork, and the prosecutor said, "Can you check the weights? Because I need, you know, I need one one gram more for my trafficking case." And and to me, that's a totally inappropriate type of communication because the answer is the answer. You can't say, "Are you sure?" You know, that would be if the police said, "Are you sure the car was white?" Because we really need it to be blue. That th- anything after that is probably too suggestive uh, to be admissible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but here, are you sure? Can you check? And th- and if you get a different result, here's the problem: the la- uh, the lab was not disclosing multiple results, and and I think ultimately. When the dust settled, there's evidence that Annie Dukin was not the only chemist that turned negatives into positives. And so now you have a sort of a head scratch. What was going on in that lab? And are we even fooling ourselves by talking just about Annie Dukin? Um, but again, I, I, I'm fascinated with the fact that this was sort of all tied off around Annie Dukin and around these stereotypes of two chemists and all samples are the same, all drugs are the same. Um, to try to minimize uh, when the, the, the answer is it's much more complicated. How did the government keep the lid on that? And, and I think you, you've said it with limited disclosures, but there was no opportunity. You had no opportunity in Commonwealth v. Scott to sort of expand the inquiry. Is that right? No, we didn't. Uh, when you're doing an appeal, you're, you're doing it with a fixed limited record that is, you know, closes as of the day that the case is, um, the decision is the decision below is made, so they don't give you opportunity to do discovery during appeal. Now, of course, you know there there are things that have to be disclosed during at at any time, but we weren't getting a lot of disclosures. Right. You know, we were just sort of seeing things in real time, and in real time, you know, it was it was just not being told to us. So you had a, a very limited window. Things were coming at you fast and furious, and not, right. and everything that was coming at you was based on what they wanted to give you. Right. So you combine all of those things together, and I'm honestly surprised that um, we got or that it what came out of there actually came out of there. So they were doing some disclose. They were doing some disclosure that had relevance in a in a in negative impact of what they wanted, but at the same time, it wasn't as broad as we're talking about. Could you talk a little bit about the ruling for this case and what, what the outcome was for your client? Well, I mean, the, the, it, um, it went back down um, with the presumption, and um, I, I don't recall what happened. I think it may have been Null Prost. Uh, it was, uh, I handed it back to uh, his trial lawyer, who'd done a, a very good job with it, and I think it was... I think it was Null Prost. That's my memory. And do you, do you recall what county uh, you were in? Um, 
Don't remember off the top of my head. I think it may have been it may have been Suffolk. Okay, and do you know was it was it a BMC case or was it a, a meaning a district court case or was it a, a superior court case? Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to <laughs> put you on the uh, on the spot. Yeah, it's, it's been it's been it's been like yeah. um, um, six over six years since the decision. Yeah. Well, I, I get, what I was trying to get at, and, and it's not re- pertinent to your case, it's pertinent to all the cases, is I think you know, Martha Coakley had uh, warned the Supreme Court in Melendez-Diaz that they were going to interfere with uh, the, um, the ability of chemists to do work because they were going to ha- have to drive around to all these district courts. And it was a very interesting admission. I mean, she, she was basically admitting what I think we know, that about 80% of these drug cases are district court cases, meaning they're, right. not, they're not trafficking cases. These are simple possession cases. Very often, somebody with addiction issues or in some set of circumstances that maybe they're not making the best choices. Uh, but these are not what people think about. These are not people making the streets dangerous. These are not people trafficking. They're not... Uh, um, uh, even armed, uh, and uh, so it, it, to me, it's it's fascinating that you have uh, this archetype of these dangerous people. But the reality is, most of these cases were people that were sort of uh, what you would call low level. Uh, many of which it were in need of some sort of treatment. Um, and so I'm curious how the the Commonwealth approached these cases. Did they say? You know what? If you had a district court case, we don't care. We'll let you walk. Or did they fight these cases? And was there a mo- an effort to go case by case? And I think I, I, the, pro- the previous uh, district attorney of Suffolk County, I, my memory was he went on record saying, "We got to go case by case. We can't do batch justice." Uh, do you have any recollection of that sort of uh, evolution? It was. Uh, it was different because you have all these different district attorneys and you know so i think that even though they weren't doing batch justice you know the case then gets put back on the list at the bmc and some prosecutor who picked up the case yesterday is dealing with it today and you know he he's got a case with a bad certificate and somebody who you know the the thought was um and sometimes with district court prosecutors, the thought is, if you don't get them today, you'll get them next week. And so a lot of these cases were getting null prost. And I did have a case that ended up in Superior Court in, in Bristol County that I had an evidentiary hearing on. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, um, they fought it because the guy also had a gun. Right. So... But he had already done the time that would have covered the gun charge, and he had like six more months for the drug charge, and they wanted him to do the six more months. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, judge didn't agree with them. That was probably one of the few cases that, uh, relatively few cases that that was contested afterwards. Uh, I I do think a lot of these. I I think when you look at the numbers of cases, uh, you're an, probably an overworked trial prosecutor, district court prosecutor, and you're not getting cases in advance. You're getting them the day before. Right. You know, you finish up your cases and then here's seven files for tomorrow. And uh, maybe instead of seven files, you're getting nine files. 
So a lot of these things, even though they were looked at on a case-by-case basis, were not looked at very long and very hard. They probably skimmed it and looked for other things. And if it was really yeah. egregious, they, they, put, they tried to put the brakes on. But right. if you look at so, it from their perspective too, I mean, not that this might be inconsequential, but I know that they don't pay these people nearly enough. The I was right. Speaking of the ADAs, they're overworked and underpaid and um, really had a huge burden put on their heads with this. Mm-hmm. which was unfair. Um, so for the SJC, I went through their ruling and I found some things that were interesting that I'm just going to bring up, Ilias, that sure. throw out there and, and see what you guys think. So um, they said that there is no knowledge in the record that the Commonwealth had actual knowledge of Dukin's misconduct at any point during uh, Scott's prosecution, and that was in 2011. Nor have we been asked to decide whether her misconduct should be attributed to the Commonwealth for the purposes of determining any sort of criminal or civil liability. Now, and now it's come to find out. So I I guess my point is with that is I don't think the SJC was receiving all the information from the lab either from the state, because we know uh, what's been released since then in the uh, inspector general's report is that Dukin was caught falsifying records by other chemists and their signatures in as early as 2009. Yeah, we, we didn't know that and they didn't know that. Right. So no one, they, they literally held that all from them. And, but, but you know, who did know that the state, the state knew that at the time that the SJC wrote this, which is. And that, that's, um, that's a problem. And that is, you know, becoming problematic for the people responsible. Right. And, um, and then they also went on to say that the record does not contain any allegations of wrongdoing by Duke in, in certifying the signatures of other chemists in the lab or in any case in which she did not serve as the primary or a confirmatory chemists. And we also know that that is not true, that she was actually messing with people's signatures, which is strange. It's strange that that, that was not um, brought to bear in this trial. Right. And we know of at least one case where she was neither the primary nor the secondary, but was involved. Right. Uh, and we know that she was the go-to person when there was a request for historic information. So if somebody said, hey, we got a case that we thought was going to plea, the defendant now wants to proceed with trial, we don't have any paperwork. Can you, got, can you go, or, or we have a question about a test, can you go back and look at what was done for some reason, Annie Dukin seemed to be the person fielding those requests, right? Um, and and could uh, I think produce a discovery packet with the snap of a finger? Even though I think I read later that the lab claimed that they didn't keep discovery packets. So once they sent the copy of the paperwork, that was it. They had a, a empty file cabinet. Which I so to me that both of those statements can't be true. Um, but it's nevertheless it's still interesting. Uh, that we're we're talking about what we knew at the time on the record, you know, as appeals ca- uh, 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 cases always are, you're limited to the record. But the record was a highly uh, minimized and and um, uh, one sided disclosure of what had been going on. I think that's right, and that's why there ended up being more cases that went up to the SJC. Yeah. Right. Did you follow the case after uh, you were done with it? Did you follow the OIG report and read that? I did. It's been a while, but I, I did. I did read it. And what was your? Because I remember my reaction reading it, 
um, what was your reaction reading it, uh, knowing that you had stood up with your eight minutes and said things that you know probably still echo in your mind a little bit? You know, I'm sure every lawyer says, "I wish I had said this," or "I'm glad I said that." Um, but did did when you read the OIG report? Did you did it immediately transport you back to those eight minutes? And you said, "Man, I wish I could have waved this report around." Not necessarily the eight minutes, but you know, I probably would have briefed it a little differently. Mm. Right. And do you, do you recall sort of um, thirty thousand feet? What are some of the things you might have uh, 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 approached differently if you had the benefit of the OIG report? Well, okay. So I, I take that back a little bit. I think the ones the the uh, two cases where Annie Dukin was in the room, um, I think those would have been presented differently. Okay, right. The, uh, the, the overall presentation would, of, of the case right. would have been different. Because, uh, I mean, Amy's, Amy won on the Annie Dukin primary, and I won on the a Annie Dukin secondary. And my, my part is actually discussed in Amy's brief, uh, in, in, in the decision on Amy's case. What they did is all, all the, the other five cases, they put little rescripts in the back of the books saying, you know, hey, uh, we just discussed this in Commonwealth versus Scott. Go look at that. But, you know, here's, here's the answer. Now, I see. So we won, and uh, the, the, the two Annie Dukin secondary won, the two Annie Dukin primary won. The, uh, the one that lost, which we kind of knew was going to happen, was Annie Dukin was in the room. Or was in the building. Now those would have been presented. Those would have been a lot different. That presentation would have been a lot different, considering the management role and and a number right. of other things that were brought up so in the ONG. If she was out doing things that were not showing up in the certificates, and she was um, signing, you know, forging signatures and and uh, doing all kinds of other things, and and maybe. Uh, she was the one, if they needed a discovery packet in a case where she didn't sign, she was the one going and making that up. Yeah, that probably would have been different. They may have gone down with the same presumption. Right. And the OIG report came out a month after the Scott decision. I think, it was, I, 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 think I actually double-checked this. Yeah. It was the day before. And amazingly... It was the day before? I believe it was the day before. Wow. And so Scott was decided on the 5th. Of, of March 2014. Mm. And I'm not sure how these decisions mechanically get, uh, uh, Dana, you might be able to explain better, but I assume that March 5th represents the day that they actually stopped typing and hit, you know, enter and, and printed out something or mailed it or uh, furnished uh, 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 somebody else with the decision. The OIG report was issued March 4th. And but they ama amazingly, I think the, the Commonwealth, uh, and, and if it wasn't in Scott, it was in a different decision. I think it was in the later decision. Notes that that the OIG report came out before, almost implying that they had had a chance to actually read it, and then said, "And how great is it that the public has been enlightened because of the OIG report?" Not what I would have wanted to write uh, if I were a judge, which is, "Man, that stuff that we didn't have the benefit of." And our decision in Scott now looks a little hokey in hindsight, but don't blame us, blame the timing of the OIG report. Yeah, I, th I think um, for the SJC, once they have a decision and it's circulated, they send it over to 
um, essentially what, it, what, it, what amounts to editing. It gets editing and then released by the reporter of decisions. So that uh, decision became final probably a few weeks before March 5th. I see. Right. So they had yeah. no, no practical chance to even if they wanted to change something, they wouldn't have been able to change it. I mean, the thing is, on March 4th, if they looked at it and said, uh, oh, this is, there's a real problem here, uh, they could have like, not released the decision. Mm. Right. But it, it was probably like, sort of on track to get released right. on March 5th. And the um, conclusion of the OIG report, or the, um, the big assumption that the news media kind of came and ran with, was that Annie Dukin was found to be the lone bad actor. That was. Um, that was what they had said. And then in the next paragraph down from that in the OIG report, they said that the, main, the root cause of how the drug lab scandal happened was um, inadequate management at the lab. So it was, it, they, they had a soundbite ruling, and then right underneath it, they undermined their own ruling, which was kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, some of these things tend to be written by committee. Right. And uh, you'll get um, contradictory information or conclusions. Yeah, and I think there was political pressure as well because I I really don't think they they were worried about Pandora's box, I think, at all times. Yeah, I mean, the the elephant in the room is that uh, this uh, affects tens of thousands of cases. Right. And uh, Dana, you mentioned earlier Sonia Farak, and obviously we're going to cover that in more detail later. But chronologically... Uh, Commonwealth v. Scott was uh, argued in October of 2013. By that point, Sonia Frock had been arrested and people knew about that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't recall when she took um, a guilty plea, uh, but it may have been before the Scott decision actually came out. I'm not sure about that. Um, but at that point, and and we 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 talked with Luke Ryan, who was uh, n- not going to let go of 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 uh, 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 of what actually happened with Sonia Farak. But at that point, there had not been the full disclosure of of of, of what had happened there. What impact, in your mind, or in any of the other lawyers that you spoke to, did that Sonia Farak case have on your presentation? And was that just a sort of oh wow, what a coincidence? Or was there some suspicion that maybe there's something beneath the surface that you won't be able to touch, uh, but, but this is sort of uh, uh, concerning that there actually is, despite the OIG's conclusion, there was one bad actor. By some point in 2013, you, you knew that there were actually two bad actors. Yeah, I mean, th- th- that was from a different lab. So, right. you know, there, that wasn't actually before the SJC. And you know, the, the idea there was that, uh, well, this is somebody who wasn't changing results. She was testing them when, when she found a positive result. She was sampling, you know, whatever, whatever she was testing. So it, it, you know, it rendered it suspect, but it didn't necessarily, um, change, wouldn't necessarily change the results. Mm. Right. So, you know, but of course, we, we were looking at that saying, okay, that's the next one. Right. Well, and I mean, I would argue that if she was high on LSD, it may affect her drug testing capabilities. Mm. That's quite possible. Right. 
Well, and, and what's interesting not is not her not her ability to listen to the Beatles or you know mm-hmm. do any kind of uh, crazy psychedelic painting, but testing drug samples in a lab probably. Was right. she was she doing LSD or was she doing uh, other things? I think she may have been. I think she. I she think was she doing cycled, a lot. I think she cycled through everything at some point. I mean, she okay. was really. Um, meth, LSD, uh, cocaine, crack. She cooked crack in the lab. Yeah, I think she really needed to know what all drugs were like. Um, and But what's interesting and has come out since, and this is why I asked, is that it turns out that Sonia Farrakh and Annie Dukin's paths crossed on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. And the idea of keeping them separate, one in Jamaica Plain and one in Amherst, and that seems that you know, they're compartmentalized, that seems like a pat explanation for why they don't link. But it turns out they actually work together. One may have actually trained the other for some period of time, yeah. uh, or showed the ropes. Maybe is the better uh, uh, example. And and then they would email each other. And I don't believe in the original disclosures by the Commonwealth that that email that we'll get to someday in more detail between Annie Dukin and Sonia Farak, where they both essentially discuss something, uh, and 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 creating an improper outcome can't be explained by either's motivation, meaning you can't attribute that to Sonia Farak's drug uh, uh, issues, and you can't explain it to Annie Dukin's uh, rushing in an effort to ingratiate herself with prosecutors. They went out of their way to think about something that had a right answer and a wrong answer, and somehow they both agreed on the wrong answer. Uh, but you had no idea of any of the, this connection between Amherst and, and Jamaica Plain. Is that right? Right. I mean, I think that disclosures consistently have not been have not been made quickly. Right. And it's uh, always all, right? oh yeah. It's it's a, this is an isolated incident. This is a few things, and it it was always always minimized. Right. And I I don't know at what point. I mean, you can't really just say, well, I don't believe you. You know, like there's you can't just say the state is lying. Every time, because that's it, it just can't hold water, even though they are lying. That's the, that's the problem. Or, I mean, lying is a harsh word, I guess, like withholding the truth or whatever you want to say. But, um, Amherst was doing runover testing for, um, Hinton. Hinton had so many samples, they'd ship them out to Amherst and they do a bunch of mm-hmm. testing there. And that was something that they didn't, I'm, I'm assuming, didn't disclose at the time as well. I mean, let, let me say some, something very general. I have had um, cases where I suspected that somebody, maybe a police officer, did something dishonest. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, uh, people get very upset. Right. Uh, but there are three or four situations where I know that the police did something honest. And the reason I know that was I was the prosecutor, and they asked me to do something that I thought was dishonest. And I said, no, we're not going to do this. We're, and and uh, if we have a problem here, we're going to disclose it. Right. And, um, you know, a couple of officers said to me, uh, you know, we look out for our people here. We, you know, we take care of each other. And, you know, so uh, as a defense attorney, I suspect that a lot of this goes on and continues to go on. I can't prove it. When I say it, um, again, there are judges who will just, you know, bite my head off and and tell me I'm being ridiculous, but I'm not. No. So so when I look (laughs) at, you know, when I was saying, 
uh, pre or uh, post Crawford and you know pre Melendez Diaz, you know certificates have a the, these things. I mean, they're not um, they they should be subject to the same cross examination, right? Because you can't the same, oh, sorry. the same disclosure. And you know, it's it's just a scientific test. You press a button, and it turns blue, and then you get a printout from the machine, and then uh, uh, it's it's a science. There's no discretion there. Why do you need to cross-examine? Because we need to know whether somebody's doing something improper. And or, now we have two examples of this. Right. Or you need to know if the lab is completely incompetent too. There, there's right. a number of different avenues that you can go that. A lot of things are taken for granted, and I think in this case, science was definitely one of them. Actual, legitimate science uh, was—it was just assumed that that's what was going on at these labs in the state because of assertions that the chemists themselves were making, not just Annie Dukin, but they were all asserting that they were—they had certifications that they didn't have, and that their scientific testing was on the up and up. Right, and uh, you know, as a as an attorney, uh, incompetence uh, can rear its head in different ways. And one thing I've noticed is, um, uh, it, 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 let's, let's take money. Uh, in, in civil litigation, you're typically fighting about money. And each side will get an expert to calculate things. And I've noticed that the math errors of experts always seem to go in the direction right. that they want. And that's because when you get a number you don't like, you say, that can't be right. And you go back and you scratch it out and you do it again. And you say, ah, oh, I forgot to carry the one. That, that, so those errors correct themselves. But when the number is ludicrously in your favor, nobody goes back and says, well, I, I should really doubt this and, and checks their work and says, ah, I was wrong. I had the decimal point in the wrong place. So this idea that even if we're not talking about malfeasance of other chemists, that it's just a sloppy lab, but that sort of you know, errors go in all directions. And so it balances out. I don't think that that's true. Uh, I think that the errors are always going to go against the defendant's interests. Um, and we know that from FBI estimates that 5 to 10% or even more of drugs seized are, are not drugs. So, and I, mm -hmm. I should make that statement more coherent. 5 to 10 or maybe more percent of things seized on the streets are not drugs. Um, and so, so there's a very real risk that one in 10 or one in 20 people arrested, if there's sloppiness, even without getting into malfeasance, just the sloppiness is going to affect the rights of, uh, of one in 10 or one in 20. When you look at things like, uh, polygraphs, uh, SJC ruled that polygraphs cannot be admitted because it's essentially junk science. Um, you know, somebody hired me to write a, a, a single justice petition on why polygraphs should be admitted. My experience with polygraphs is whoever hires the polygraph examiner, that's who it comes out in favor of. So if there's a, a defense attorney hires a polygraph expert, polygraph is probably going to show that he's truthful. If it's the Commonwealth, it's probably going to show the other uh, otherwise. Mm. And there's just really too much room for sort of manipulation. Right. And, you know, I, so I looked at a polygraph and I had one, you know, 25 years ago where my client passed with flying colors. This is before I got involved in the case. And, um, and he did it. He was guilty. I mean, it, the polygraph was completely wrong. Wow. So, 
you know, when you assume that something with, there's something that I talk about in a lot of appellate briefs called the CSI effect. Yep. And people assume that uh, if a scientist comes in and says, we applied scientific methods and we did this and we did that, that that is absolutely airtight. Right. And the reality is that it, it's not. So, you know, fingerprints aren't as conclusive as you think they are. Right. right. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, they thought um, hair sampling was, and hair analysis was going to be the next big thing. Right. Um, DNA has been pretty good, but it's not without its flaws. Right. Um, and and I've, I've had examples of this throughout my career. Uh, I overturned a murder conviction after 26 years because a lab person who has since been fired said that uh, he found occult blood on both sleeves of the defendant's jacket. And so we got, once DNA testing became available, which it wasn't at the time, um, I asked for testing. And the testing was, okay, the DNA didn't match, number one. Number two, there was no blood on either cuff of the jacket. And the state lab, uh, we hired a private lab at the state lab who had done some of the sampling. They sampled it and they didn't find any blood either. And blood doesn't disappear. You know, that this was probably an example of the lab tech saying, you know, we have a pretty thin case. We want there to be blood on the sleeves of the jacket. It may not have been stated explicitly, but he knew what he needed to do. Right. So he came in and testified, yeah, there's blood on both cuffs of the jacket and it's a cult, so you can't see it. But I found it. I measured it. I swabbed it and it's there. And it was never there. Mm. And when someone's asserting that, why would you like, see, that's the thing as a jury, you wouldn't have any reason to not to think that that person was getting on the stand and lying right there. Like right. that's, yeah. you can't make that assumption as it's very difficult because then you have to think everyone's like, it just, it's a slippery slope. What's, what's painful for the, in, my, in the case of my client, um, he, uh, he had a, uh, uh, he was convicted at, at a jury trial. Um, and his defense was it was not cocaine. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a winning defense in hindsight. He had his case subsequently null prost uh, and, and obtained a civil settlement uh, with the Commonwealth. Um, that defense didn't go over a- at all with the jury. They must have been rolling their eyes to hear a guy who, uh, by all accounts, looked like he was dealing uh, or uh, handling cocaine uh, and um, and th- the idea that it wasn't cocaine, that it was some sort of crushed up nut, seemed ludicrous to them. Uh, now, there's a very actual, real explanation for why it was crushed up nut, uh, and uh, that we'll that we'll get into. But uh, uh, you know, Martha Coakley, I think, made a very revealing admission in Melendez Diaz in the oral argument. She said that it's the behavior that's criminal, whether it's drug is secondary, mm-hmm. and. That statement fascinates me because what is the drug behavior? And I think I said this last time that if you want to find drug behavior, the easiest place to find it is just go to a college campus <laughs> and drive around and find all these suburban kids uh, who are partying. And there's, you're going to find your drug behavior there, but that's not what we've done. What we do is we drive around certain neighborhoods in cities like Boston, Lowell, Lowell uh, Springfield, and we have criminalized the behavior and whether it's drug is secondary. And I think that attitude really seeped down to the drug lab. 
uh, and it's 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 sort of unfortunate now in hindsight to know the full extent, but or some of the extent. Uh, but you can sort of see that that I think the SJC adopted that idea that well, these guys are probably all guilty, right? Isn't that sort of what their overall attitude was? I'm not sure if they fully accepted that. Um, I think that that was that may have been their assumption, um, and and it 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 is uh, probably my assumption. You know, when you talked about five to ten percent may not be actual drugs. That means that ninety to ninety-five percent probably are drugs, right? Right. And in a lot of cases, you know, there are drugs, and there are other circumstances. Like, for example, my case where the, they went into the safe and they found drugs, and they found a gun, a loaded gun that he wasn't supposed to have. Mm. Uh, so they, they were probably thinking that, but I think that what was primarily on their mind was that. Uh, what do we do with you know fifty or a hundred thousand cases? Right. right, and not so. To me, what this case really screams of is a lack of the ability to get a fair trial these days, and how everything is kind of pleaded out outside of the court, like every case involved with Commonwealth versus Scott. And I think over ninety percent of the cases that go into uh, the system are are plea deals. Is that that's what Luke Ryan was saying. Is that accurate? That's pr- that's probably accurate, and you know it's especially accurate if you have um, you know pre Scott and pre um, pre Melendez Diaz, you are going to get this piece of paper saying that uh, yeah we have two people, two lab technicians who you know did all their things, and you know this this is definitely drugs, and nobody ever had any reason to doubt that. Right. So if you're going to do a plea and you said, you know, I had, um, I actually was waiting to get resupplied and all I had was uh, burn bags that I was selling to the college kids uh, and I, I didn't have any drugs on me, but yet it comes back positive for cocaine. Well, I'm not going to take a chance. I'm going to plead out. Yep. Right. Yep. All right. Did you have anything else for Dana? I think I think we covered it. Um, was do you recall Dana um, any? Uh, and I think the answer is probably there was nothing. But do you recall any discussion of how drug samples at the various state labs were uh, compared? Meaning, how did you how did you actually determine that it was drugs? It, you know, you have the bench test where you do uh, you drip. Uh, 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 chemicals to create a reaction, reagents to get a reaction. You might look under the microscope. You might smell it if it's marijuana. Um, but then it's supposed to then go to this fancy machine. Yeah. And did you have any understanding of how the fancy machine is really going to tell you what it is? And if it's comparing it to something else, did you have any understanding of what was it was being compared to? Um, my understanding of the machine is that... Um, you know, they're calibrated regularly, they're supposed to be, and that it will give you a, um, it, it will give you a profile of whatever substance they found there, whether it's cocaine or PCP or whatever. And, um, and it's, you know, every chemical agent has a, um, you know, has a specific profile. Mm. So, you know, we, we just sort of assumed that that was pretty accurate. Right, right. 
Yeah. And you mentioned calibration. I think this is one point we didn't touch on. Uh, after all of this, I believe Massachusetts had yet another uh, scandal involving breathalyzers. That it turned yeah. out that they just didn't calibrate those. And we can guess which direction that probably uh, went in, because obviously if every police officer is pulling people over because they're weaving across the lanes and getting a negative, someone's going to say something's wrong with our tests. But they must have been happy with those results because they never bothered to calibrate it. Uh, and that created a, a, a new headache. So I think we learned later that there were calib- uh, quality control and calibration issues. But you had no idea that there were quality control issues at the lab other than Annie Dukin. Is that right? No. And, and on the breathalyzers, it was one particular brand and it was off by a certain percentage, um, po- possibly off by a certain percentage. So, you know, if you had somebody who comes and blows a, a 0.18, um, then, um, you know, possibly, uh, he could, it could have only been a 0.16, but you know, you're not going to, you're still going to plead. Uh, so that's been, you know, sort of a sim- similar type of thing. But if you have somebody who's got a, you know, 0.09 and 0.08 is, you know, under the influence, then that's where you're going to get some kind of, uh, relief. Right, but right. You know, as far as these machines, we had no idea. Yeah, you know, how do I know what, uh, why they, um, how they work, or even why they work? But right. you know, we sort of assumed that there was uh, some real expertise there, right. and especially where you had two lab technicians signing off on every one of them, right. then you know that uh, two different ways this was confirmed to be drugs. Right. And if they're asserting that Annie Dukin was the on, the lone bad actor, then why would anyone else assert something false on a drug drug certificate? Yeah. So what they were saying is that you know Annie Dukin secondary shouldn't be a problem because uh, there was another one who was uh, presumably doing things right. Right. But right. the devil's in the details, as they say. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dana. This has been enlightening, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. I, uh, I and I also appreciate your integrity when you worked at the, um, you know, for the state. I think there needs to be more people like you who are willing to kind of stand up for what's right and not what's convenient at the time. So, thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Dana. Thank you, Dana. <laughs>